0: This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome back. I've got David Kidder, the CEO and co-founder of Bionic on the line. Hey, David, how are you?
1: Hi, welcome.
0: Thank you for uh, having me. Oh, thanks for being here. So you have a new book out, new to big. Um, Tell us about that, and why in the world would you want to write a book?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've done this is my seventh. I've done this is my side hustle. So, uh, uh, New to Big uh, is uh, a story about um, how large organizations can re-found themselves. It's the idea that uh, venture capital and entrepreneurship are forms of management uh, that ignite growth, and it's not uh, Silicon Valley has no monopoly on this capability. It's just basically been eradicated by the big to bigger efficiencies of a large organization. And so the new to big is really the job of uh, discovery uh, of, of new problems and needs in the world, and how do we uh, build solutions to those new problems and needs uh, and scale ideas up? Kind of that zero to 100 million dollar job that most organizations have lost the capability to do.
0: Yeah, we're seeing that a lot because, you know, we have the big players and we know who they are. You know, we, the Amazons of the world that have basically steamrolled and, you know, from growth and, and, and got to the point where, you know, they continue to grow year after year. I mean, we just recently, you know, had, you know, Prime Day and, you know, they, I don't know how many billions they made from that. Uh, But again, so there's an organization that just continues to grow um, to the point where, a lot of you know other organizations that would be in competition with them are, are scratching their heads, going, "Okay, how in the world do we even get a piece of this puzzle, much less go up against them?"
1: Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, ultimately, I mean, if you look at um, how Amazon or I think any scaled startup, uh, it could be Google or others, is actually working. They're work, working as founder-led scaled startups, they're working in a completely different operating system that's focused on learning velocity, you know, both in what they're learning as well as what they're unlearning. And so a question I think you have to ask yourself as the CEO of a large organization is, is, you know, how fast are we learning relative to the rate of change on the outside of the company? So if there's huge asymmetry between my internal rate of learning and the rate of change outside, that means I'm effectively blind to behavior change. And so if I have you know, millions of customers that took us decades to build up and, and this, this mountain of customers is dying and I don't know why and the work that I'm doing to try to stave off the mountain from dying, right, these customers, uh, if I don't know why, I'm basically blind to where the behavior is going. What is the solutions, the new problems and needs that those customers are going to, and what are the solutions that are solving those problems and needs that are different than what my current product does today. And so there's this major mindset shift from a, I call it TAM to TAP from a total addressable marketplace view of the world, which is linear and it's researchable and planable, to discovery, which is the portfolios of bets into new total addressable problems and needs. And you reframe that it changes everything because you you're, you're really moving from an inside out view to an outside in view of, of where growth comes
0: from. And it's funny you mentioned behavior change. You know, I grew up uh, just outside of Detroit, and my grandfather, great grandfather, and father all worked for General Motors, and mm-hmm. that was an organization historically that said, "This is how we're going to do things. We're not going to change. We're not going to modify anything." even though Toyota creeped up on them and blew past them as far as sales and quality and everything else. And then of course we know what happened, you know, roughly 11 years ago, you know, the government had to bail them out in order for them to continue to exist. Uh, They did not change their behavior. Uh, now, you know, from my observation, they're an organization that seems to—and of course, a pessimist is an optimist with experience—is uh, mm-hmm. uh, is, I'm hopeful that they've learned their ways as an organization, and they're you know doing things to try to reach you know the customer and the consumer on not only what they want right now, but what they're going to want in the next ten to twenty years, and with the advent of electric cars and self-driving vehicles and all these other things that uh, a lot of organizations are looking into, uh, it's a situation where GM had to become more agile and, than they've ever been before in their history uh, to be able to adapt to the very fast-changing needs of, of consumers and, 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 and customers. And you know, I think that's one of the things that it jumps out at me for those organizations that can grow uh, even going up against you know, large entities, is you know, how agile can they be in order to be able to pivot when they need to, uh, to be able to take advantage of uh, the changing market?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is, is to reframe what's the customer problem that we're solving. So in the case of GM, it's not about cars, right? It's about freedom of mobility, and so, and I'm, not, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm making that assumption. I'm sure they have a very good understanding of this because they're very smart. But like when you re- reframe around a marketplace where cars are built and sold and made, really the, the total adjustable need is really about mobility. And so the question is, what is our proprietary gift in solving the need of mobility? And so the question is, are there models, are there technologies, et cetera, that are solving mobility in more effective ways than selling cars. Like cars are the technology in search of a problem. So like, for example, like, you know, you can scoff at scooters, right, for example, which is a micro mobility solution, but it's also like one one thousandth the cost of operating a car. Like, so when you wrap your head around like, oh, I just need to move from A to B, and the world is getting, you know, going to urban environments and you know, the the new consumer of mobility and let's say the millennials alone um, aren't going to spend X amount of dollars on mobility in the way that we did in the past, which is live in the suburbs, buy a car, put it in a garage because the storage alone, if more than half your customers uh, live in an urban environment, which is the case, no longer exists, that makes owning a car affordable. So how are they going to move? And so What's our role? What's our proprietary gift in solving that problem from the outside in with the customers as opposed to inside out where we're inventing stuff in search of a problem over the wall, skew-based thinking? That's radical. So because it reframes what's the problem or need? Well, it turns out that the reason why people don't buy cars is not because they don't like cars. It's because of college debt. Okay? So how are we going to solve mobility when the greatest expense in the life of the consumer who used to graduate college and buy a car is they're basically insolvent for the first decade or longer of their life. That changes a lot. So anyways, my point is you can start to realize, Oh, we have to make a lot of bets in mobility for us to understand who we're becoming as a company to solve that need in the context of our proprietary giftedness and our scale. So it's, it's quite radical. And so our our work with the, the CEOs of, P&G and Exelon and Johnson Controls and uh, General Mills and others is really uh, reinventing those companies around, honestly, the grand challenges of their time. The total addressable problems, the trillion dollar problems that they must solve and they will solve because they're on offense in our model.
0: That's a great example. And you you mentioned the scooters. I was recently in San Diego for the Comic-Con convention and, and I, there were scooters everywhere. Um, And, and in Toronto where I'm based, um, you know, they have bike rentals and we have more and more bike lanes. So uh, you called it, it, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, the millennial generation for sure, you know, are, are getting out of college or university with, Insurmountable loans and debt, and instead of you know rolling up to the car dealership um, to go get a new car, uh, they are using Uber or Lyft or public transit if they're in a community that has it, or you know they're being you know really creative on their things because they simply can't afford it. In, in case in point, you know in, in Toronto, for example, you know, with the massive number of condos and, and growth that the city has seen. You know, the traffic is getting to the point where having a car is almost impossible because you're going to be in traffic forever on top of, you know, parking situations, you know, in in my particular condo building, uh, you know, parking spots are anywhere from $150 to $200 a month to rent. So you're looking at, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year just to put your car somewhere. And if you're using transit or other means of transportation, for you know, 20 hours a day, that thing's just sitting there. It's kind of a waste of an asset, quite frankly. And so it's a case of, you know, no, you know, I'd much rather just use Uber or Lyft, get me somewhere, and, oh, there's a scooter, let me grab it, and away you go, or Uber or Lyft, and you get to where you need to go to. Um, yes, you're paying out more, but you're also paying for what you actually need. And in the long run, you're you're better off because you're not filling up with gas or oil changes or repairs or anything else.
1: Yeah, I mean it's one of those uh I mean, it's just at the end of the day, it's the it's the you know, cost per transportation experience. Like what's the outcome they're trying to buy? And what's the most effective and efficient way to get that outcome to Happen, and so I mean, it's also I mean, where they live. I mean, the role of, of of you know urban buyers relative to the exurban or suburban is radically changing. You know, the country. So those and it's also get you know, it's not just a it's not just a you know a U.S. centric problem. If you look globally, you know, you 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 have a lot of you know tremendous volume of people coming online who need those those outcomes. And so, what is our role in those outcomes? But I fundamentally. You have to move from linear to portfolio, from single, you know, individual four or five big bets a year to hundreds with a very high productive failure rate. So I think one of the other questions I think CEOs often ask is like, is like, do, do people tell me the truth? And so I think you have to ask yourself is even if I get good at going on offense and working this way and thinking like a venture capitalist and portfolio theory, et cetera. Do people have this the, the the permission and safety and the skill to tell me the commercial truth that's actually true? So you know, lean and 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 we call it valley at scale um, is, is a critical skill for people to be able to communicate commercial truth because if you're not, the organizations are effectively intellectually dishonest, which is a huge risk for uh, for the business. Um The last thing I would say is that um, it relates to commercial truth is that it ultimately um, the companies are often uh, just simply a direct reflection of the leaders uh, um, limit, so to speak, or intentional limit of uh, the company's ability to create growth. And so it's almost, it's like our personal lives too. Like we're comfortable up to a point, but as long as it doesn't break the the truths that I've always believed about myself and my company. So, they, in a way, their psychology is the ceiling of the companies because they'll bias it to a level of of permission. And so this ultimately is about the permission that an organization gets from its leadership um, to actually go on offense and to really break things and to solve those problems or needs. And the the data actually supports this. So this is my last long-winded point of this, is that about um, 80% of all returns in growth come from about 4% of capital deployed. So if I make a hundred bets, four are my 20 to 50 X returns and the rest will either go to zero or just dollar for dollar return my capital. And so the question is, well, how do we make those four? And they have two qualities. One is it's based on a discovered secret with conviction. And then second quality is non-consensus. So non-consensus, you make all of your money from the ideas with the highest disagreement rate. So conversely, if you have consensus, you literally can't win. And so going back full stop, if the CEO doesn't have the permission to make non-consensus decisions in places where they don't understand,
0: We'll be back to the show in a moment, but first I want to let you know today's show is brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, CloudHQ. With CloudHQ, you get access to over 20,000 influencers that have been curated by brands just like yours. If you're a brand, you know how difficult it is to find and connect with the influencers that your audience already knows and trusts. That's why I suggest you get CloudHQ. When you sign up today, you get access to over 20,000 influencers on Instagram. You can see loads of data about their profile and engagement rates before you reach out, and you have direct access to their contact information so you can reach out to them on or off the platform. When you reach out to them on the platform, they offer automation tools so you can reach out to a bunch of those influencers at one time. This will save you a lot of time and I guarantee it'll pay for itself in the first year. For Breakfast Leadership listeners, I'm offering a special discount. Normally, an enterprise subscription would go for over $1,500 a year. My friends at CloudHQ are offering a subscription for just $499 a year. That's a savings of over $1,000. You can sign up today by using the discount code BREAKFAST and save, like I said, over $1,000 a year. Cloud HQ is a wonderful option for any brands that are looking to influence their marketing and looking to get their program off the ground. So sign up today using the link in our show notes and use the code BREAKFAST and let me know what you think. Like I said, I guarantee it'll pay for itself in its first year. Cloud HQ is an amazing offer and it's a good option for anybody that's interested in influencer marketing. Now back to the show.
1: They can't create growth. And that's a radical insight into how you organize a company to get to commercial truth.
0: That's amazing. Cause we've seen it time and time again. And I, and I think of uh, not to use another auto uh, reference, but Alan Mulally when he took over Ford and how everybody was saying, yeah, everything's great. You know, all those reports were saying everything's in the green, but the company was bleeding money. And finally someone was bold enough to say, no, this is actually what's happening. And then, you know, he applauded them for telling the truth. And of course the next meeting, all the spreadsheets came out and it was a sea of red of problems that Ford had. It's one of those things where organizations, if they actually get their people to actually share, you know, what's truly going on, it's going to give you the opportunity to be able to, to do the things you need to do to pivot and grow. And I love the non-consensus thing because again, we've we've sat through so many board meetings and meetings and everybody's like, yep, that's a great idea. And everybody's on board and you're going, mm, are they really on board? <laughs> and it's like we're playing it safe. It's like, okay, it's you know, it's first and ten. Okay, let let's hand it off to the running back and hopefully they'll get two or three yards or you're going to step back when the defense isn't prepared and throw the bomb and you score the touchdown and then you get the momentum and then everything starts taking off. It's, you know, one of the new England Patriots playbooks, they seem to use that quite a bit for some reason. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I think you, again, when you're in a planning model, every idea has to work, right? You, you, you're sort of like a, uh, an idea zombie factory, right? So that if, it, if, if, it, if, um, you know, if I, if you can sell a dream you can never unsell. Then how are you ever going to learn? So if it's a plan and it has to work, and I, 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 my metrics are driving the business because I'm the I'm the CEO and I put it, I gave you a check and now you just have to build a business. That's actually not how businesses are are built. It just doesn't really work that way. So it's all about you know um, unlearning and running down dark alleys and the mindset of that. I wrote a book called The Startup Playbook, which was really about, about 40 interviews uh, of some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, Elon Musk, Sarah Blakely, Robin Chase, and others, about how do they bet their life and how do they look through a series of lenses that really are an idea selection. And they effectively said all of the same five lenses, and they were the following. One is, um, the first lens was proprietary giftedness that leads to an unfair advantage. Which was effectively, why them? What, is their, what was their secret insight to solving an emerging massive problem they created an unfair advantage. It was effectively impossible to replicate. The second lens was is that they're very good at quitting bad options. They are, The ability to get to extreme focus was central to their skills so they could run down dark alleys and find the light. So extreme focus, that in, in a way, optionality is your enemy. The third lens was they built painkillers, not vitamins. They were solving chronic lifelong pain in the customer and not trying to convince the customer it was a good idea to use their product. That's a vitamin, right? The last two were about execution, which is the idea of 10x. They knew the thing in the business that was impossible to replicate, and they asymmetrically invested in it. So they could actually get to something that was 10 times better, because where they wanted to be was the fifth lens, which is a monopoly, permanence. They intentionally created the hooks and barbs so customers would stay with them. So great ideas survive a common set of mindset lenses as an entrepreneur. And the venture capitalist is there to create the unfair advantage to know what are the questions I ask as, you know, a seed A, B, C round in growing an idea up from the new to big. They're very different questions along the stages because in the beginning, there's no math, right? It's just solving the problem through a set of lenses of a solution. And ideally it's a model innovation. That is not a financial job. That is a discovery job. And so it's like asking a, Uh, it's like a zygote five-year-old, 10-year-old ugly teenager job of raising something up. Each one of those stages is a different set of questions and metrics to be successful and skilled in doing as an investor. And the entrepreneur is there to to create the growth.
0: It's, you know, that answered, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask you next was when you're working with all of these CEOs, what's, you know, what's the common trait that you see for the ones that are going to be successful and be able to really um, take on the initiatives that they need to take on versus the ones that, that play it safe?
1: Well, uh, one is ownership. I mean, if you want growth, you have to own growth. And it's, I think this is an important mindset for all leaders, which is You can't like say to your employees, okay, go create growth and here's a new methodology, right? The methodology is important, but like if you think it's about them, (laughs) right? They're the skill issue, like let's train them up to this. In reality, if you go talk to the organization, you know, you think you have an employee problem, you talk to employees, they say, we have a leadership problem. And reality is you need both. You need great entrepreneurs and great investors to create growth and so the great investor skill is what's been eradicated because of optimization and efficiency and scale is effectively at war with new things because they're not understood the instinct to go into non-consensus because they knew it's in non-consensus to create growth because it's effectively new learning and change the world answer the questions why is my mountain dying why is where is the behavior going and that's as much offense as defensive cases but that's really the permission of leadership needs to have in a model. So the second part of this is I was always surprised that you know a CEO can say something and mandate it and it doesn't get done. You think they all march you know, hierarchy underneath them, very rarely does that happen. And so you need a bone drill. You need to go and give the company a model with the mandate and the ownership to be able to go do this at scale so you can get into the bones of the company and create the change. And Bionic, my uh, the company we started five years, six years ago now, does that work. We create the model that does the new to big and helps the leaders with the mindset mechanics to lead it.
0: It's so important. And I've you know worked with organizations that were I don't want to say stuck in the mud, but I guess that's a good way to describe it. And, you know, this is how we've done it. And it's like, well, what got you here won't get you there. And we're going to have to. I love the analogy of, you know, going deep into the bone uh, to really, you know, change the behaviors and the patterns of the organization because it's it's crucial. And as we just look back in the last decade how different it is to run corporations than it was before and in 10 years from now it's going to be different than what it is now and i think those organizations that will grow and thrive and be able to be successful in in their product launches and in serving you know the customers that they serve those are going to be the ones that are able to adjust and pivot and and do the things that need to be done instead of you know like i said before playing it safe
1: Yeah, there's this this great book, one of my favorite books, is a book called Top Dogs by Pope Ronson. And he talks about, in that that book, he talks about the idea of a mindset of playing to lose versus, sorry, playing to win versus playing just not to lose, and how fatal it is, actually. So, you know, venture capitalists and growth leaders make investments in ideas because they believe they have unbounded returns, right? And so, if you don't do the work and believe that's true, then it's unlikely you ever get it. And so they use the example of behavior psychology of competition. And so in the case of extreme competition, like a shootout in a soccer game or hockey, where you have each team gets, you know, they're tied, they each get five shots each, five, five, four, four, three, two, it's the really it's a brilliant behavior psychology test. So the first striker in soccer to go up there and kick the ball scores 85% of the time because they're playing to win, right? And you have nothing to lose. And so as you go through the count, five, four, three, two, one, the probability, sorry if you score a goal or you even remain tied zero, zero, you're always playing to win. Uh, And the probability you score the next shot goes from 85 to 92%. So conversely, if you go into the game, having to win the game or you go down by a goal, the psychology is now just playing not to lose. And the probability that next striker, when they're playing just not to lose, scores the next goal, collapses to sub 60%, meaning you can't win. And so the psychology and the mindset mechanics of what you do has to have an offensive playing with mindset. So you even have a chance to discover the unbounded returns on every shot you make, which happens in a portfolio.
0: It's amazing stuff. Um, and I, again, highly recommend everybody pick up, well, all your books, but especially the, the latest one because, uh, well, the Startup Playbook, you know, I'm familiar with that one as well. And there's some great, great lessons for people to help them um, not take shortcuts because I'm not a big fan of shortcuts, but take the right steps to help their organization get to where they want to the right way so you don't
1: have to trace back and, and do all the things you didn't do. So, yeah new to big is uh new to big is a, is a, is really a sharing of a story that our partners of, of their own journey and uh, the model, quite frankly, it's the kernel of what we do. and we we know it's hard to do this. And so there's an incredible volume of insights and sort of play. We're kind of a version 5.0 of this after six years. That's sort of like one point zero. We're giving, giving away the kernel because there's value in that. And so I hope new to big um, is something that you know, people enjoy, but we're happy to share that story with them in person if it makes sense for their organizations.
0: That's awesome. Good stuff. David, thanks so much for your time today. Where can people find out more about you and the awesome work that you're doing at Bionic?
1: So sir, our, our website is onbionic.com. We serve our partners. They're on us. Um, so onbionic.com, uh, uh And then of course I have my own website, davidskitter.com. But predominantly on Bionic and we we'll te- will share the stories of the work we're doing Um, And I hope that they are genuine and uh, as grateful as we are to do the work. So thank you for having us uh, on the podcast.
0: Great to have you here. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening.